Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers kicked it old school during our 10th anniversary flagship season, The Decades. On January 28, 2020, at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers relived the bomb times with stories inspired by the theme, 90s. And now, our featured storytellers, Paul Schaefer, David Lee, and Caleb Chung. Let the good times roll. It's story time. Mr. Paul Schaefer. My story is a story of my love of story and how that led to the cabin and as it happens, story, story night, too. I, in 1989, I followed my heart, uh, my fiance, to Boise. I had been a magazine guy in the Bay Area, and I edited the 100,000 circulation book called the Berkeley Monthly. And the monthly began life as the Berkeley Barb, the 60s voice of the counterculture and free speech movement. Became the monthly about four years before I came aboard. But in Boise, the Statesman hired me to help design Scene magazine. And I then became its first editor. But the Statesman and I never managed to get quite on the same page. And uh, I left after a year. Um, and on leaving, I was uh, invited and appointed to the um, Boise City Arts Commission, which was a real fledgling outfit um, in those days. We had one less than half-time staff person to support us. But I had the understanding that my fellow commissioners hoped for some kind of literary initiative on my part. There were fewer trees in Idaho's literary orchard at the time. And I had the idea of attending a conference in Missoula that was put on by Bill Kittredge, who's a, 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 a mythic teacher and writer in the West who chaired the writing program at UM, and Onyx Smith, who's a filmmaker. The conference was biennial, and while I was there, they agreed in spirit to hold it in Boise on alternate years, which was gonna be great. Um, I returned home to Boise Thrill. We gathered a group of writers uh, to the commission, and I laid out the idea, and they gave it a resounding no. The, which was a really good lesson in learning how to meet people where they are. And where we were, this collection of writers was offering the occasional workshop and holding the odd reading. But gradually, the idea took root that a center for writing, for writers, for readers, for literature in Boise was viable. And we petitioned the city council for use of that abandoned log cabin that was next to the library on Capitol Boulevard, Idaho's Main Street. Location, 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 right? <laughs> so, and ultimately that abandoned log cabin, which was known as the Chateau de Bois, became Log Cabin Literary Center 
LC squared, anyone? Um, simply, in the end, finally, the cabin. But that process took several years of lobbying, and we had to formulate a plan that gave shape to the, to the flood of ideas that we had about what a center would do and who we would be. And that plan became the trunk of the tree that is the cabin. So we have a new tree in the orchard now. Several months before the cabin opened its doors, uh, Ivan Doig and his wife Carol were staying with us. And Ivan, of course, is a writer. He, he lived in Montana, wrote mostly about Montana, but he was read and loved all over the world. And I shared news with them that this group of writers who had now become the first board of the cabin had asked me to be the director. Ivan, in a kind of mischievous, maybe a little bit of a gruff way, allowed us how he wasn't sure administering an arts group, group counted as, well, adult behavior. <laughs> he and I clucked over this for a time but I was pecking at it still uh, later that spring. I had accepted the post. We had been given the keys. We'd hardly moved in. After signing a 50-year lease for a dollar a year and a promise to fix up the building and paying with a $50 check so they couldn't throw us out. Um, and this newly minted founding director found myself with Gary Snyder. It was the evening of his talk here. And you know, Gary is a recipient of the National Book Award for his poetry, part of the beat group of poets. And um, we walked along the Boise River. We happened to find ourselves just the two of us. And this new director had a definite case of the now what's. Um, and I wanted Snyder, who is a hero. I wanted his advice. I wanted the cabin's roots to run deep, and I wanted its branches to fill the sky. And Gary answered, and I, I say Gary because we felt thick as thieves in the moment. He said, in my travels in the towns and colleges where I speak, there's a common thread. There's a hunger for story, he said. It is loose across the land. It gives me shivers even tonight to say that. And I paraphrase now. He, he also said there's, there's a thread and there's a threat because our story as a people is no longer shared. It's fragmented. You could say it's torn, he said, and there's a desperation to reweave the fabric of our community life. This is 1996 now, late spring. A quarter of a century ago. Prescient, do you think? And another thing, <laughs> Snyder barked. He said, these literary societies, they're revolutionary. It's not tea and cookie hour sitting on the divan. So there really is a hunger for story in the land. 
I mean, look at the 500 of us or so here tonight. The um, sold-out seasons of readings and conversations, that star-studded branch of the cabin's tree. <clears throat> readings and conversations. Uh, wits, writers in the schools, writers in detention centers, writers on reservations, summer writing camps across southern Idaho in our beautiful mountains and floating our wild rivers, book fest, writing groups, readings, workshops, classes, agent editor meet and greets, publishings. These are the branches of the cabin's tree. And as the programs moved out into the world, the truth of Snyder's words became more clear and their power more evident. Stories do heal us. Stories help us to understand. Stories have shaped us since before language when we were grunting around the proverbial fire. Story underpins every art form, even in the form of anti-story. History is told by story, as is the daily news. We follow the thread and we glimpse then the wider fabric. We are our stories. This is why Story Story Night is so important. The cabin so necessary, so needed. That hunger I also saw in the many thousands, literally tens of thousands who come through the cabin's doors. And they came to know that their stories mattered because there was a place they could come to begin, even if they didn't know how or where it would lead, simply because the cabin existed. Was there visible on Main Street, Idaho? I think it's that way. Um, that was empowering. And that is revolutionary. From the vantage of a quarter century and more now, almost 30 years from the first glimmer in my thought of what would become the cabin, I see my part as a pilgrimage imbued with the intention that is part of any pilgrimage. Before my walk with Gary Snyder, my pilgrimage began, though, not consciously in the years leading up to that walk. And it was literally the same walk along the same stretch of river. For those several years, I had been walking several times a week from, the, from Municipal Park downstream to the Chateau de Bois and back while negotiating with the city, the city attorney, the park staff, our group of writers shaping this plan. Week after week, I had been walking my private pilgrimage to what would become the cabin. And in the story of beginnings, the deep beginnings of the cabin, and tangentially story, story night are found there. From a branch of the cabin's tree, a precious fruit let go. And this is in the natural order and proper way of trees and of orchards. A friend of the cabin, a member of our board, Alvin Greenberg, 
those who knew him, a kind and beautiful man, stormed into my office one day with a sheaf stuffed with clippings and articles about a program in New York called The Moth. So The Moth is the progenitor of programs like Story Story Night, and they're, they're all over the country. Alvin wanted Boise to have its own moth. And we puzzled for a while, it was several months probably, over where the funding was come from, who would be the right people to run it, how this would all come together. Pardon me. When in through the cabin's doors walked Jessica Holmes and Hollis Welch. And they came into my office, they had their own notes. They sat down. I said, yes. And they said, have you heard of Story Story Night? I said, yes. And my heart raced because Clay Morgan was busy launching the Center for Story at BSU, where Barbara was then teaching. And he had asked how the new center and the cabin, now 15 years old, how we could collaborate, how we could partner. So here, here it all was. And a trail of meetings followed among we four. What would our moth look like? Where would it be? How would it work? What would we call it? And one afternoon at Lucky 13 in Hyde Park, we were batting these ideas around and Clay said, what about Story Story Night? And our eyes grew large and our lips silent. Story Story Night was born. Jessica and Hollis were soon driving not just the mechanics but the spirit of the program. And um, as they say, the rest is herstory. <laughs> Maybe plural herstories. And, and it was, for me, the moment I knew the cabin had fully grown up because of fostering this program that stands so gorgeously on its own. So. Very shortly after that, I left the cabin. There was an auto accident, in fact, right in front of the cabin, and I had an injury that kept me from being able to do what I needed to do as well as I needed to do it. And, but, I, but I wanted to say before truth broke in with all its matter of fact about events, Story Story Night harvests the power of our stories, our humanness, our humaneness, and then replants the seed of that story in each of us and they've been doing that for the last 10 years now. So I saw Jessica earlier. Thank you, Jessica. And, and for me, I think of story in, in the shape and in the words of Bill Kittredge, in fact, who told us over and over, writing, he would say, or telling your story, however you do it, is naming the things we hold sacred. And so for me tonight, this has been a chance to finally name these things that are sacred to me. So thank you.
Mr. David Lee. Good evening. I've really enjoyed this year's theme, Decades. I think it's partly because I recently retired and I find myself doing a lot of flashing back and memories, if you will, flipping through the Rolodex that is my life and finding how things fall out in neat little chapters. And I found in my case those chapters kind of line up nicely with the decades, and that was particularly true of the 90s. Uh, that was an incredible time of transformation for me. Uh, for one thing, in 1989, I finished law school. I lined up a job down here in Boise, came down here to take the bar that summer, got sworn in that fall, and uh, right after that, started to work. So you might say the, ni the 90s were the start of my life as a young suit and tie wearing professional. And since Jody suggested costumes, I decided to try to come <laughs> dressed as a younger version of myself. <laughs> it's been in the closet for a while, but I think it looks okay. Uh, anyhow, that was really, really quite a change for me. For one thing, before I went to law school, I didn't even know how to tie a tie. Uh, but it wasn't just a matter of ties or clothing. It was a matter of attitude and lifestyle. But before I settled down and went to, life, to law school, I actually spent a lot of, a lot of time as a, something of a wandering, hippie-esque youth. I moved around a lot. I did a lot of odd jobs. I was always just kind of hovering right above the brink of being broke, but getting by, and that was good enough. Uh, like I said, I lived a lot of places. One of the places I lived was McCall, Idaho, where I lived from 83 to 84. And once again, got by by various odd jobs there. Uh, when I wasn't doing those odd jobs, I was playing in the lake or up at the ski hill or floating the river or various other fun stuff. Uh, eventually, I decided I had to get serious, grow up, if you will. Uh, um, so I went to law school and yada, 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 I finished law school and ended up here in Boise. And here I am at the dawn of my legal career, and wouldn't you know it, now contrast this to the background I just described, but I actually started to work for one of the largest firms in Boise, or the largest firms in Idaho. It was rather prestigious, elite you might say, you also might say stuffy or snobby. But, uh, but, uh, and by the way, people ask me, was that your dream to work at a big law firm like that? And the answer is, heck no. That was way, way too establishment for me. And furthermore, it kind of came as a surprise to me anyway, because in law school, they were kind of warning us, well, if you want to work for those big firms, you got you to be in the top 10, you got to be on law review, moot court, all the bells and whistles. and I didn't have any of that, but somehow I managed to have the right assortment of background and relevant work experience that this firm liked me, and they offered me a position. Not only that, but they offered me a salary that was a fair chunk higher than a lot of my colleagues and classmates were getting at that time. And like I said, it was prestigious. And if nothing else, it could offer me some 
maybe some resume building experience that might come in handy later on, which it did. So I took the job. And by the way, there are some other intangible perks to it as well, one of which was the view. This particular firm at the time occupied the entire 16th floor of what is now the U.S. Bank building. Then I think it was the West One building. And that was a nice little perk to have, particularly if you're out downtown for dinner and drinks and you want to impress your friends, say, hey, you want a nice view of the city in all directions? Yeah, come on, let me show you my office. <laughs> that was pretty cool. That was a nice perk. But that and all the other perks started to lose their luster after a while when I kind of got to realize the, the stresses and pressures of the, this particular work environment. It was definitely a high stress, high expectation kind of job. Definitely a grind to get billable hours and you got to deal with the personality types of the senior partners and uh, Overall, sometimes it seemed like it was a competition to see who's more willing to sell their soul to the company store to get ahead. Uh, anyhow, it was stressful and I found my ways to get stress relief among other things. I sampled the local watering holes and happy hours. And eventually I found one of those watering holes that quickly became my favorite. There's a place called the Iron Gate Lounge. This was in a hotel called the University Inn, lo located right at the edge of BSU, by, at Capitol and University, right where the Micron College of Business now stands. <laughs> but anyhow, that was an interesting place, had an interesting assortment of regulars and Pretty soon I was one of them and got to know all the regulars and of course I got to know the staff. In particular, I remember one of the cocktail waitresses there whose name was Sabrina, which Jody wanted me to point out happened to be a 90s TV show, but our other speaker already pointed that out. <laughs> Any, by the way, when I said I lived in McCall, uh, before, uh, I did many jobs, but one of the jobs I did is I worked as a substitute teacher. So here I am, I don't know, 10 years or so later, and I'm meeting, oh, did I mention Sabrina was from McCall? I might have forgot that part. <laughs> so we reminisced about McCall a little bit, and eventually kind of figured, did the math, and I figured out, I think she was one of my students <laughs> when I was a substitute teacher. And I asked her about it, whether she remembered me. She didn't remember anything at all, but. I still, you know, I still came into the bar to see her now and then. I'd bring it up now and then. She still never remembered. Not until one time, this was actually, I think she was getting ready to leave town and the gang got together, I think at another bar to give her a send off. And at that particular gathering, I started reminiscing about my substitute teaching days again. And it was kind of a funny story. I was talking about this one particular time I was put in charge of overseeing, I think it was a seventh grade social studies class. And they were all supposed to be quietly working on an assignment. And there was this group of like three or four girls in the middle of the room who just kept laughing. <laughs> you know, little girls, yeah. Uh, 
And I tell them stop and be quiet and work, and they'd say, okay, we'll stop, and they'd stop for a second, they'd get, start laughing again. And I wasn't the best disciplinarian. I strived instead to be the cool, so, but sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. But anyhow, the this little, little eruptions of laughter kept happening. And at one point I got frustrated and tried to put on my authoritarian hat and kind of walked up to the group, finger wagging and everything, and said, listen, girls, you're supposed to be working. Now, what's so funny? Do you want to just share it with the rest of the class? And they all say, no, 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 it's okay. We'll, we'll be quiet, we'll be quiet. And then I turned around and walked back to the front of the room. Suddenly I realized the source of their amusement. Turns out this entire time, my fly had been open. <laughs> and at this point, again, I'm at this send-off for Sabrina, and I'm telling her this story, and suddenly she lights up and she says, I remember you now. <laughs> Couldn't help but wonder, you know, I don't know why it was so important to me that she remembered me at that time, but, you know, maybe for the same reason why this story has come back to mind at this point in time. I think it's partly because both then and now there was a part of me that really, really wanted to hearken back to my younger, more freewheeling, wandering self. Uh, wasn't long after that conversation, I did make a change. I left the big firm. I took a job with the state, far more relaxed and laid back had extra holidays and vacation, and you could actually use your holidays and vacation without getting a guilt trip from the senior partner. So. so, you know, it was probably more in keeping with my younger wandering self. I still had to work, still had to show up, so I didn't have all the freedom that I had back in the 80s, but I wasn't broke all the time either. My 80s wandering self probably wouldn't have envisioned my uh, working behind the same desk for 20 years, which is what I did there, but as it happened, that worked out pretty well for me. It brought me a lot of security, and more than anything, it brought me the ability to retire. So now, I can start wandering anew again. So that's kind of exciting. And I think I've been, well, first, for, uh, like I said, this is a costume. This is my 90s self. But I couldn't help but wonder, what if I wanted to come dressed up as my 80s self? What would that look like? I'm not sure, but I have a feeling it would look pretty similar to my current day retired self. <laughs> I might have blue jeans instead of cargo pants, but you know, pretty close. And I think but whatever I'm wearing, it, what really matters is I hope as I enter this next or continue on this next chapter of life, I hope I can continue to embody the attitude and the wonderment of that wandering young 80s self. And so far, I think I've done a pretty good job doing that. I've been wandering along through life with no particular place to go, but finding interesting places to be. I've had a variety of adventures, not the least of which is a couple of trips to the Story Story Night stage. What's my next adventure? I don't know. That's the wonder of it. That's the beauty of it. Besides that, we can't predict the future, can we, right? 
Although there's one thing I think I can predict with reasonable confidence. Whatever my next adventure is, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to be wearing this. <laughs> Mr. Caleb Chung. I actually uh, own that shirt. I did, yeah, in, in, the, in the early 90s, I was a, uh, was a street mime and then I was a children's performer. And I probably did a thousand shows in my shirt that's like that. That, that was it. That's how we made a living. That's it. That's right. You're, you're making me mad. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I'm, You're a bad person. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Just, for those of you that did not have kids in the 90s, this is a Furby. Yes. Um, so uh, there's, about, um, there's about 50 million of these. And so uh, there's a good chance that there's one in your house somewhere. <laughs> and it's probably in a, a, a bottom drawer or a, or a dark closet and it's just waiting to scare the crap out of you. <laughs> kind of a Furby sleeper cell. So uh, the, batteries, uh, the batteries pretty much last forever in, in standby mode and, uh, and there's, no, there's no, no off switch like my wife says of me. And, and there's a... Uh, <laughs> And they respond if you disturb them. So uh, this is just apology in advance. If your grandmother goes in and, you know, she dies because... So I'm going to tell you a... Uh, tell you a Furby story. Uh, Jody asked if I would uh, speak on Furby, and I said no. And, uh, and my wife goes, good. Uh, my wife's name is Christy. She's right over there, so I, I have to be careful. Um, but uh, I... I finally said yes because I actually, we have a Furby story um, that, we, that we have not told, if you can believe it, and we haven't said anything about this part of the story for almost a quarter of a century. So 23 years we have not talked about this. So it's not funny. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so uh, like uh, stories that connect us and these kind of things, these are this is kind of a little cathartic uh, for us, or for me, to talk about this. So I have to take you back to uh, the summer of 1998. And it all, uh, it all starts about here. So uh, my wife and I are, Christy and I are home, and we hear a knock at the door. And you know, we go to the door, it's like late June, uh, early July, open the door, and there's a, uh, a well-dressed young man, uh, a Chinese guy standing there with a, with a briefcase. And I know he's Chinese because he looks like half my family. So, so he's standing there and he looks a little lost, like, am I at the right address? He doesn't look like he belongs on my porch. And he says, uh, excuse me, um, he had a little broken English, he says, uh, I heard you had something to do with the Furby. And, and uh, this is a very strange thing to happen, but um, 
So I have to take you, I have to step aside, let's leave him there for a second, and I have to give you a little background on why he might be there. About five months earlier, Furby had debuted at the New York uh, International Toy Fair in New York, and it's every year uh, in February. And Furby was there uh, for the first time, and, and uh, the trade is there to see him, right? Uh, and the news is crazy, you know, it goes, it goes it, it, uh, he was a big hit there, and suddenly there's all this news all over the place. Uh, I think Wired Magazine actually did an article on it, like a five-page article in Wired, and that's not like a toy magazine, right? It's like Moody Furballs or something like that. And, and, then, um, and then there was a, a New York Times article in Popular Science, and it was like everyone uh, was, was writing about this crazy new toy that everyone was expecting to see in, uh, in the coming Christmas. And, uh, and I think it was partly because the year 2000 was coming up and everyone had tech on their minds, and this was a, like a tech toy. And that, and, um, well, that was probably the main thing. And then, of course, all the PR machines are going for the, for the toy companies, and they're all ramping it up. Anyway, it's everywhere. So we wonder if it's something to do with that. So we invite him in, and he comes in, and, we, and he sits, uh, you know, in our, in our little, in our living room, and, uh, and he explains why he's there. So he says, well, uh, I'm from a, a large San Francisco law firm, and there's been uh, a claim by Warner Brothers Pictures against Hasbro, the manufacturer of Furby, that they possibly have copied their character, this Mogwai character, which is a little furry thing from a 1984 film called Gremlins, right? And uh, you, you know, there, there goes the house, honey. So we'll see. <laughs> We, we, we hope not. Anyway, so uh, he was, uh, he's there, and he says, um, I've been to, uh, you know, he's trying to, he's investigating, right? And so he's been to all the places that uh, have said they, they came up with Furby, because he needs the design materials. He's looking for, you know, this, uh, this paper trail. And he said he was at Hasbro, and uh, uh, they're the manufacturer, and they don't have any early materials at all. There's no, you know, like invention kind of papers. And then he goes to Tiger Electronics, who did the big article in Wired Magazine, and they don't have anything. And finally, uh, he went to the agent, Richard Levy, uh, you know, he's gone to everyone who's been in the news, except for uh, um, this guy who's the, like the newly famous inventor of Furby, uh, this guy, uh, Dave Hampton. And, uh, and he's the one in all the news, right? And so, he doesn't know this, but this like brings up all kinds of bad feelings for us. It's a nice guy, it's not his fault, but this is just like knife in the gut to hear this name again. So um, I have to go back in time again about another year. So we're gonna leave him there uh, for, for, for a second on, on the couch. Uh, and it, he, he had asked, you know, do you have any design materials? You know, I've been to all these people and they all say they're the inventor, and, and do you have any design materials here? You know, I found your name, you know, it must have been on the patent or something. I don't know how he found our name, but I, we were his last, last place he could check. So, so yeah, so we're, we're, you know, at that moment, we're, you know, we're not feeling really good. And the reason is, is a year before, well, actually started out really good about a year before. Dave and I are at the previous uh, New York Toy Fair, and we're walking the aisles of Toy Fair. This is 1997, February. And Dave and I, I knew Dave from Mattel when we worked in this Blue Sky group, and he's really good at electronics, and we've kind of kept in touch over the years. 
and I had invited Dave uh, to come to Toy Fair. He'd never been before, and since it's a trade-only show, not the public are allowed, only, only uh, you know, trade kind of pe people in the toy industry can go. So my wife and I had a little business called Giving Toys. That was the, the name uh, of, of the company. And right underneath it, uh, on our card, it said Beauty and Magic. And so if you read it, it's, you know, Giving Toys, Beauty and Magic. And that was pretty much our mission statement. That's, you know, what we were trying to do in, in the world. And so we put Dave's name on there. And so Dave and I, it's like at 205th Avenue by the, by the Flatiron Building, and it's a million square feet, right? And, you know, Hasbro, and I, I mean, there's a million companies there. We walk as many as we could. And then it's that night, and it's the last night, we're staying at the Mayflower Hotel on Upper West Side. It's not there anymore. And uh, we have this dingy little room that we're splitting. And, uh, and I'm trying to talk Dave into doing something together, because I'm hoping we can collaborate, because I do mechanics and creature design, and he does electronics, so mm, let's, let's do something together. And it's always hard to get someone to invent with you. And, I, and I, so I keep pitching ideas. How about this? How about this? How about this? And the reason he's reluctant is because um, you don't get paid for inventing unless you actually get the license. And, and otherwise, it's just all risk. And Dave and I both did, uh, and, and Christy and I, we did development for other people, toy companies, whoever. So if we stop doing that and we invent, then, you know, you're, you're risking. So... I wasn't getting through to him, I, nothing was sparking, and so I finally said, um, Dave, what do you want to do? And he, and he thinks for a minute, he thinks for, he's taller than me, he thinks for a minute, and he says, hmm, I just want a little guy that can be my friend. And I joked that, uh, that I would have said, you know, I thought that was me, Dave, you know? <laughs> but I didn't say that, I didn't say that at all. Uh, I said, great, that's what I want to do too, let's, let's do that. Good. I was, I've been pitching, you know, artificial pets and these kind of things to, at Mattel for years and no one got why. So if Dave wanted to do that too, I'm like, I'm all in. So we decided I'd go back to Boise, he'd go back to, to California, and uh, over the next, you know, hopefully spring and summer, uh, I could come up with something that would be a creature or a thing that we could both do together. Uh, it's my job to do that part, and then I'd contact him and we, he could add some electronics and then we'd go pitch it. So. So now um, it's spring and, and it's going into summer and I'm, Christy and I are, you know, now Christy's my design partner, my wife, we, we do everything together. So if I say I, I mean we, you know, especially on Furby, I, you know, it's just very natural for me to say I, 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 I a lot because I, I, I'm very self-involved. But, <laughs> but I mean we, okay, so, so anyway. Um, so we're working all summer, and it's, and it's fun. It, you know, you're creating a creature, you're trying to bring something to life, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience. If you, if you write or make movies or do something, at some point your work takes on a life of its own. And in my case, when I get there, it kind of looks at me, and there's, it's kind of a little spooky, because it goes, I'm here, right? And, and, and so we had this little creature look like a little uh, Australian bush baby, you know? But it was very realistic and, and kind of cute. And, uh, and I made a little controller so I could make it move so we could do it like a pitch to a toy company. So get on a plane, I fly to uh, California, and Dave lives, uh, he's an electronics guy, but he lives off the grid, here he used to, by the National Forest, and he'd go out, start his generators, and run his PC. So we go, I went to his house, and uh, I know weird people. So, uh, so I sit at his kitchen table, and uh, 
and I show him Furby for the first time. Well, he's never seen it, right? We've talked over the summer, but he's, he's never seen the thing. I'd call him now and then, you know, Dave, we need a, a microphone, and we need a touch sensor, and we need this, and he'd, you know, write it down. But he hadn't done anything yet, right? He, he, nothing to build yet. So I show up, and I show him Furby, and then, you know, we, we talk about it, and then, uh, and then we, right there at his table, we also come up with the furbish language, you know, we had, a, we had a good time doing that. Now it's time to sell it. I'm, st I'm still there, we're going, okay, we gotta find a toy company to take this to. This is the hard part, is finding someone who's gonna license it and give you money for, for this idea, and then you make a little bit on each one. And so, um, we finally, uh, I got a hold of a guy named uh, Richard Levy, who is a, a pretty well-known uh, toy guy, certainly now. He's an inventor, and he al would also broker deals. And I knew this, and I also knew that I wanted to take this to Tiger Electronics. Now, they were an independent company, but they were the right profile for, for this company. Um, so he got us a meeting because he knew them. And so one thing led to another, and they said yes. So they said, yes, we want to do this Furby product. And, you know, wow, that's exciting. That's fantastic. But we want it for Toy Fair, which is in 12 weeks. And we want you to, we want you you to build, you know, multiple of them, and they want working models of different colors, you know, because it's like a Beanie Baby line, and, uh, and we want it all ready for Toy Fair. And that's, uh, that's really hard to do. It took me all summer to make one. How am I gonna make, you know, six or whatever? And, uh, and so, um, Christy and I work, work and work, and those, those 12 weeks were probably the hardest of my life. Certain, not Christy, she's had three kids, so I know that, that she's, <laughs> so. This was nothing, but no, it was, it was hard, and uh, mostly because we are separated a lot, and we work well together, but when we're separated, I just have a hard time. I, I need, you know, I need her to work with me. So, so uh, then what happened next, though, that was kind of the part we don't like to talk about. What happened next is um, it makes it to Toy Fair, and, it, and it's a big hit, right? And it, you know, right there, and, and right when it's introduced, Hasbro announces they're going to buy this little company, Tiger Electronics, and this is the cherry on top. So Furby was like instrumental for Tiger getting bought by Hasbro. It's a big deal. And, uh, and so we go home. I go home. I'm exhausted. And then we start watching the news. And we realize that we've been uh, completely erased from the narrative. Yeah, there's no, there's no Caleb and Christie in this at all. Um, Richard Levy, the agent, has decided to put himself in the middle and say, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I made this happen, right? I, I made all this happen. You know, I ran the show. And anyway, and then, uh, and then Tiger did the interview with, with uh, Wired Magazine and all the stuff like they did, right? So we invented Furby, right? There was this guy named Eric, but you know, then they wouldn't say Dave's name, but that's all they did. And then, uh, but then Dave starts showing up in the news and uh, he's in like a, you know, popular science or whatever it was, and you know, he's there holding Furbies, the inventor of Furby, you know, genius inventor of Furby, you know, and, and we're, I'm just like, oh God, I can't look at that, right? It's like incredibly painful. There was one uh, TV show, 2020, I guess it was, it was a long format video show, and uh, I turn on the TV and there's Dave walking by his property in the woods and there's an interviewer walking with him. So Dave, how did you come up with the Furby? And, and I'm watching, he goes, well, I, I saw an owl. <laughs> and she goes, a wise owl? Yes, a wise owl. I saw an owl, and that's how I got the idea. And I was, oh, you know, it's, oh my goodness, is that painful, right? So I've never even shown Christy that. So anyway, all this stuff is going on, and, and uh, 
And so now we're back in the living room, and there's this guy, this really nice guy, you know, do you have any design materials for Furby, right? Because we'd like to prove if it was, you know, one way or the other. So uh, I look at Christy, and we go, okay. And we go over to this closet, and we start bringing out crates, right? And there's a big, big crate there. Here's another big crate. You know, we had like four of those clear crates with the flip tops full of design materials. Because, you know, they, we invented the thing, right? So, so it's from the very beginning, the first scribbles, all the way through into the brand and the storylines and, and all the mechanics are in there and all her drawings in there and, and my design books and every page is signed. And you could do like do a flip book and watch, you know, like Furby appear, you know, it was so well designed. And so uh, we bring these out and, uh, and we put them uh, by the kitchen table and he sits down and, you know, starts going through each one, right? And uh, as he's pulling out each one, it's like we're reliving each of these moments. Oh, what's this? Oh, look at that. Okay, you know, and it's like it's all coming up again. All the, the beauty and magic of creating something, having the joy of, of bringing something to life that is just this marvelous little thing. And then thinking about what happened, right? It's like, you know, having a kid, having it adopted and having them, you know, taken away. Anyway, um, so the question, you know, I, I came to uh, writing this was, you know, why did we do that? Why, why didn't we, you know, it was real hard for Christy and I not to rail against the injustice. You know, our friends and family are going, get them, you know, this is horrible, right? They, they feel horrible. It was harder for them. But we decided to not say anything. And that, and, and that was really a, a difficult thing to do. And it's because, you know, you, you have to make a choice who you are in the world. Right, um, and Furby was really the choice that we're going to give beauty and magic, excuse me, sorry, to the toy industry. And that was the heart of what we were doing. And if we interjected into this conversation, you know, the national news was calling me. They called me on the phone and says, what about this, uh, this uh, you know, scandal going on? You know, are you the inventor? What's going on? And, you know, I really, really wanted to say those words that, you know, this guy's an imposter, you know, where you're, you know all this whole thing. But we didn't, and, uh, and so we had to talk about it for a long time, and it's, well, you know, there's no question we're on the contracts. There's no question ab about the patent. We're gonna get the money, but we're not gonna get the credit, and, and, and that's okay. And it's okay because we already have all the stuff that we need. We have each other, we have our family, we already live in, in paradise here in Boise. And so we decided not to say anything and that was like for 23 years. So we go back, the guy on the table, right? He's finished. I, I'm glad we can go back to him because he's a great guy. He's, anyway, so he's, he's all done. He puts his briefcase together. He goes to the door and, uh, and, he, and you know, we let him out. He's gonna leave at the end of the day. And he stops, like, you know, five feet away, like he forgot something. He turns around, and you could tell he'd been, it looked like he was working up to this. And he says, uh, they, they said you had something to do with the Furby. Uh, but you did everything. <laughs> right. So we shut the door, and, uh, you know, we didn't do everything. I mean, thousands of people worked on it. You know, you, you don't invent something like the space shuttle that has all this influence, right? But Christy and I had that baby. 
You know, that was our idea in the beginning, and, and we can be proud of that. So I think there's another thing I've learned since then, because, you know, Christie is like, you know, we don't want the celebrity, right? We, we don't need that. I don't want people looking at our family, and, you know, we don't need that. I, I kind of wanted that, right? <laughs> you know? Could you imagine that, you know, that I would want that? And uh, so it was really hard for me to, to work all these years in a career, and, you know, yeah, I, I, won, I won the race, so no, you didn't. It was that other guy, you know? Here's some money. So, but I, I think the... I woke up in the middle of the night the other night thinking about this, wondering why did we do that? And I think it's um, self-worth comes from the inside, right? Not from the outside. And it is reflected in how you treat others. And that was, I think, the hard lesson for me uh, that, that you don't look to the outside for that. And I have an epilogue to this story. Epilogue to the story is um, that... Uh, Years uh, later that summer, the, the suit was dropped. Uh, I, actually, there wasn't a suit, uh, and our papers had proved that, you know, no one copied a mogwai. Um, although, if you get furby wet, he does turn to a monster. But other than that, there's it, it, it no, no relation at all. <laughs> and, uh, and strangely, uh, or, or uh, karmically, you might say, um, we got royalties on, on the mogwai, Furby. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and our show sponsor, The James Castle House. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was DJ Jason Prettyboy. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Also, check out our YouTube channel at Story Story Boise. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. Thank you.